let's remember our motivation really feel our fortune and be aware of the fragility of this fortune how each moment things are arising biting and ceasing relentlessly how our life is getting shorter moment by moment and how there's no security whatsoever in samsara that security only lies with generating the wisdom that realizes reality and so let's do that not only for our own benefit but in order to attain full benefit full Buddhahood for the benefit of all beings You had had a question? Um, yeah. Uh, this, this is from uh, when we were talking about when we were talking about the monastic first being ordained in different trips, different motivations. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, my problems are going away, or woes, or questions of that, and their confidence. And for me, I was thinking, in sort of the motivation set of, of having a lot of fear as I saw it, and in general, just a real challenge myself. And, Everything. So then the view of monasticism uh, seems to have some sort of um, then it'll be okay. You know, uh, not in a worldly sense, but in that when I die, I uh, so, uh, won't have that. Now is that you know, I should be doing more, I could be doing more when the monastic having those vows and being part of something that's so much bigger and virtuous just doing your best like that I imagine a lot of relief mm-hmm. so what my mind then makes it is that I should be so master I'm just wondering if that's a good motivation okay so let me see if I can paraphrase it correctly so you're saying when you're seeing all the disadvantages of samsara mm-hmm. and and seeing how you waste a lot of time and how you're approaching death and so on and so forth and then you look at life as a monastic and think if I become a monastic then you know I'll, I'm, I'm part of something that's bigger than I am and my life's going to be lived in a virtuous way and so then I won't have so much fear of death and all the disadvantages of samsara and so uh, then you say to yourself, so I should become a monastic. Is that right? Yeah. And so you're wondering if that's a good motivation or not. Okay, so grabbing onto the identity. If I only do this, then I won't have the fear at time of death or I won't have fear of the lower realms. If I only do this. Okay. So, you know, what's so difficult is 
there's different ways of saying the same word. You know, there's a way of seeing the disadvantages of samsara, you know, seeing the advantages of monastic life and saying, you know, if only I did that, I would really be going in the, in the right direction and would be beneficial for me and beneficial for others. And therefore, I really, you know, I should become a monastic. I want to become a monastic. Okay? And then there's the way of saying, if I have all these fears and doubts and everything, and if I become a monastic, then just by becoming a monastic, all my fear and doubt is going to go away, and that's going to calm down my berserky mind. Therefore, I should become a monastic. Do you see how the words are almost identical, but it's the tone of voice and the way we're saying them to ourselves that are very different. Yeah. So that's why it's so hard. You know, you have to see with what tone of voice, with what kind of motivation, you're saying those words to yourself. Yeah. Because it could be done with a wisdom mind and a really beautiful aspiration. You know, of, oh, if I only became a monastic, then that would happen. Therefore, you know, I want to do this. I should do this. Or. If I only became a monastic, therefore I get all these benefits. And so I should become a monastic. I guess I want to become a monastic. Same words. But, you know, one says out of faith and understanding and beautiful aspiration. And the other ones said out of some kind of intellectual knowledge that is you know, not completely heartfelt and kind of pushing ourselves. Okay? So it's only us that can really understand what our tone of mind is, what our tone of voice is when we're saying certain words. Okay? So we have a tendency when we're really saying it with a good motivation and sincerity to be to doubt ourselves and think, oh, I'm not really genuine. This is just a bunch of words. And we also have the tendency that when we're pushing ourselves and saying it with this kind of intellectual motivation to think, oh, yeah, I'm really serious now. So you see how we often don't even understand ourselves very well. You know, we doubt our own sincerity and we mistake our intellectual knowledge for sincerity. Okay. So learning to, to sort through all of this is something that comes through your meditation practice and through observing your mind. Yeah, It doesn't come through somebody else telling you an answer, but just by observing, you know, what kind of feeling tone is in my mind when I'm saying this? You know, and when do I doubt myself, and when do I mistake intellectual things for understanding? And you know what's really happening here. And so again, you know, th- this thing of trying to understand ourselves and understand that anything we are feeling, if we discover it's a sincere motivation, not to say, oh well, yeah, I got a sincere motivation. That's all taken care of and thinking we don't have to cultivate it anymore. 
Or if we find that our motivation is kind of intellectual, saying, oh, it's only my usual intellectual motivation, and not and passing it off as that without realizing, hey, you know, I can change my mind and, and make it more genuine. Okay. Mm-hmm. You use motivation in that context in a sort of particular way. What? You use the word motivation, motivation in a yeah. sort of particular way, yeah. which alluded to the motivation being something a lot more deep mm-hmm. than just kind of well, what I think of as setting my motivation. Yeah. Well, we're, right now, a days, we're mm-hmm. setting our motivation basically by saying words to ourselves. The purpose of that is by is in order to generate the feeling in here. And some days we really generate the feeling and some days we're just establishing that habit of saying the words and planting the seeds so one day we actually do have that motivation that we're saying in words. So motivation would be more of an experience. Yeah, yeah. Definitely motivation should be an experience. But we all don't have perfect motivations all the time. And we all forget our motivations. And so that's why we cultivate it. In the same way, the opening prayers that we say, you know, um, uh, thinking of the qualities of the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Some days we're totally spaced out when we say it. Other days we say it, and wow, we're really thinking about it as we say it, and there's some feeling there. But we keep saying it regardless, don't we? Yeah, because just by saying it, it's planting that seed so that some days we actually do get some experience. So it's not like you have to have the perfect 100% guaranteed wonderful motivation before you ordain, because only the Buddha has that. Okay, so it's not like you become a Buddha first and then get ordained. Okay, we become ordained so that we can become a Buddha. Okay, so um, the other day we left off with the Buddha seeing that all these very drastic ascetic practices just made him very weak physically and didn't re, you know get rid of the attachment and craving in the mind okay so now I'm just going to jump I'm kind of jumping sutras here but there is um, another sutra uh, again in Lajjimanakaya sutra number 36 the greater discourse to Saka no Sakaka okay so Sakaka whose name, uh, who also is called, his other name is, ah, let's see if I can say it, Ajivesana, okay. Um, he was the son of the Jain leader, uh, Niganta, uh, who, then they were kind of, Niganta and the Buddha, there was some, you know, a little bit of competition going on there. So Niganta's son, uh, Sakaka, wanted to challenge the Buddha and because uh, he was a very good debater and wanted to challenge the Buddha and humiliate him and make him convert him to his father's religion. So he was asking the Buddha, I'm just going to summarize some things here, saying that there's um, 
some recluses and Brahmins who abide pursuing development of body but not development of mind. Okay? So by development of body, what Ajivesana was referring to is these ascetic practices. Okay? So he says some people do that, but they don't develop uh, the mind. And so uh, because of that, they, go, they have a lot of turmoil. You know, and that's not so good. But then some uh, uh, recluses and brahmas develop the mind, but don't develop the body. Meaning, in, in Ajivasana's parlance, that means they don't do these ascetic practices. And so he says to the Buddha, I think your disciples are like that. <laughs> okay? And so, um, but the Buddha has a different meaning of development of body and development of mind. And in the way the Buddha is speaking about it in the sutra, development of the body refers to insight meditation. Okay? So, in the Pali Canon, insight refers to an awareness of impermanence, uh, uh, a realization of dukkha, and realization of non-self. Okay? Um, I don't know why that would be called development of body, but probably because um, that uh, insight is what leads you to go beyond samsara and so leads you beyond having a samsaric body. That's my guess. That's not what I read, but that's my guess. Okay? And to the Buddha, development of mind means shamatha, and in specific, the, the jhana practices, the dhyana, or meditative stability, or concentration practices. Okay? So that's what the Buddha means by development of mind. Okay? Because um, when in. Uh, when these meditators were out in the forest, if they experienced great fear, if they, had, if they uh, could go into jhana, then the experience of mental fear of animals and ghosts and so on ceased because their mind was in a fully concentrated state. Okay, so that would kind of be development of mind. But in any case... Um, here the Buddha goes on to talk to um, Ajivasana and explain what undeveloped, what development and undevelopment of body and mind are. Okay, so he says, "How Ajivasana is one undeveloped in body and undeveloped in mind." Here, Ajivasana, a pleasant feeling arises in an untaught, ordinary person, and this is a we're referring back here to our discussion a few days ago about uh, attachment to the, f- the um, five sense objects. Okay, because we we have we have contact with the five sense objects. In the case of pleasant ones, you know, there's a pleasant feeling that arises when we have a pleasant feeling. Craving or attachment kind of follows. You know. In the, in the shortest finger snap it's there when we have contact and, there, and it's an unpleasant contact then we have an unpleasant feeling 
unhappiness, suffering, and the next moment we're off into, you know, hostility, aversion, anger, dislike of this unpleasant sensation. And if we watch all day long, this is kind of going on in our minds. And if we have a neutral sensation, then we space out and we're in ignorance. But so quickly, you know, from a pleasant feeling, you know, we're such suckers for pleasant feeling. We have no discriminating wisdom about pleasant feeling. We don't see it as impermanent. We don't see samsaric pleasant feeling as in the nature of dukkha. We don't see it as non-self. So as soon as we have a pleasant feeling, boom, we go into attachment. When we have a painful feeling, we're also suckers. And we don't see it as impermanent. We don't see it as in the broader nature of dukkha. We don't see it as non-self. And we go instantly into hostility and aversion. Okay. And then the same with neutral feelings. Okay. So, he's saying here in Ajivasana, a pleasant feeling arises in an untaught ordinary person. Us, okay? Touched by that pleasant feeling, he lusts after pleasure and continues to lust after pleasure. Okay? And here lust isn't referring just to sexual lust. It's any kind of pleasure, you know? Hot shower, sitting down when you're standing up, whatever it is, you know. We want more. That feels good. I want more. Okay. That pleasant, okay. But then what happens after a while? That pleasant feeling ceases. Doesn't it? Okay. Why? Because it's in the nature of impermanence. Pleasant feeling ceases. With the cessation of that pleasant feeling, painful feeling arises. Why? Simply because we're separated from the pleasure. Yeah? Or we sat down after standing up a long time and then sitting down feels awful. We ate after being hungry and we keep eating and then we get too full and that feels awful. Okay? So... You know, after the painful, after the pleasurable feeling, it ceases. Sometime after that, we get a painful feeling. Touched by that painful feeling, he sorrows, grieves, and laments. Sound like us? Oh, why does this have to happen to me now? I'm always so unfortunate. I don't like this. You know, I want my pleasure back. He weeps, beating his breast, and becomes distraught. Well, maybe it's not always that dramatic, but sometimes it is. You know, we're unhappy, and I'm unhappy, and I'm sick of being unhappy. Why me? This is awful. This is terrible. It sucks. I want out of here. You know? We get like that. I've seen you. And I've seen me. Okay? 
Now, of course, we cover it up in all sorts of ways, you know, don't we, so that we think nobody's knowing. When that pleasant feeling... <laughs> yeah, you've given it up. You're right out there. <laughs> we know what's going on with you. <laughs> Other people are, you know, like... Um, and they just retire to their room, you know, very gently and don't come out and don't make a lot of eye contact. But when you say, how are you? Oh, I'm fine. <laughs> and then you know. <laughs> okay. When that pleasant feeling has arisen in him, it invades his mind and remains because body is not developed. Okay, so when we have a pleasant feeling, it invades our mind, you know. The attachment invades the mind. It remains. Why? Because insight is not developed. Okay, we don't have insight in about the object of our pleasure. We think it's permanent, we think it's pure, we think it's in the nature of happiness, and we think it has a self. Okay? So this is the, here he's saying, you know, because body is not developed, meaning because insight isn't developed. And when that painful feeling has arisen in him, it invades his mind and remains because mind is not developed. Okay? So we have a painful feeling... We're miserable. You know, we don't think to sit down and try and develop samadhi at that point. <laughs> okay? Anyone in whom, in this double manner, a risen pleasant feeling invades his mind and remains because body is not developed, and a risen painful feeling invades his mind and remains because mind is not developed, is thus undeveloped in body and undeveloped in mind. Okay. So he's saying to Ajayavasana that being undeveloped in body has nothing to do with the ability to endure uh, ascetic practices by squeezing yourself. Also, what I didn't say, which comes before this, is uh, the Buddha had asked Ajivasana, what have you learned about development of body? And so Ajivasana says, you know, that these people go naked, reject conventions, licking their hands, and goes through this whole thing of strings, that we, string of ascetic practices we talked about yesterday. So that's what he calls, you know, be, being developed in body. And, you know, and they... they take food once a day, once every two days, up until once every seven days, once every fortnight. They, they dwell pursuing the practice of taking food at stated intervals, you know, starving themselves in between. And so the Buddha had asked them, before this part we just came to, but how do they subsist on so little? And Ajivasana says, no, Master, but, um, oh, but um, he asked them, do they subsist on so little? And Ajivasana says, no, Master Gautama, sometimes they consume excellent hard food 
eat excellent soft food, taste excellent delicacies, drink excellent drinks. They thereby regain their strength, fortify themselves, and become fat. Okay? So here are these people who pride themselves on being extreme ascetics and they, because they do that for a while. And when they, not, when they don't do that, then they sit there, they eat lots of food, have lots of delicacies, you know, just really eating it up, literally. Okay? Sound suspicious? <laughs> Sound a little bit extreme? I guess so. I guess so. What they and then the Buddha says, what they earlier abandoned Ajivasana, they later gather together again. That is how there is increase and decrease of the body. But what have you learned about development of the mind? When Sakaka, the Niganta's son, was asked by the Blessed One about the development of mind, he was unable to answer. And so, what we're reading now is Buddhas instructing him on what it means to be developed and undeveloped in body and mind. Okay? As you can see, why the Buddha is defining, you know, development of body and development of mind totally differently. Yeah? Because he's really uh, emphasizing the internal qualities, not the external business. Okay, so that what we just went through was how undeveloped in body and mind, and the next paragraph, and how Ajivasana is one developed in body and developed in mind. Here, Ajivasana, pleasant feeling arises in a well-taught noble disciple. Okay, so a well-taught noble disciple. Well-taught means it's somebody who has learned the Dharma, who has listened to teachings, who has thought about the teachings, who understands the teachings. And noble disciple refers to somebody who has at least the first elementary understanding or direct perception of nirvana or of selflessness. Okay? So in the in the Pali system that would be called a stream enterer. So you have stream enterer, once returner, non returner, and arhat. So those are all noble disciples. So how does this noble disciple respond? Touched by that pleasant feeling, he does not lust after pleasure or continue to lust after pleasure. So at the present he isn't lusting after the pleasure, he isn't craving for more and better later on. That pleasant feeling of his ceases. With the cessation of that pleasant feeling, painful feeling arises. Touched by that painful feeling, okay, painful feeling arises because in the poly system you have, as long as you're born with this body, you have painful feeling, even if you're an arhat. In the Mahayana system, if you have become a, a bodhisattva, then you, uh, an Arya Bodhisattva, with direct perception of emptiness, then you don't have uh, painful feelings, at least not in the same way. Okay. But touched by that painful feeling, he does not, so he has painful feeling, okay, this noble disciple, but touched by that painful feeling, he does not sorrow, grieve, and lament. He does not weep, beating his breast, and become distraught. So he reacts, he has the same feeling of pain, or before the same feeling of pleasure, 
but his reaction to that is totally different. Okay? So here you can see that it's not that pleasure is bad and pain is to be avoided. Pleasure and pain come of their own accord. It's how we react to the pleasure and pain that is make, that either creates good karma and you know helps us to progress along the, the dharma path or that throws us into a, a whirlwind of affliction yeah so it's not the pleasure or pain themselves it's how we react to them okay when that pleasant feeling has arisen in him it does not invade his mind and remain because body is developed in other words because he has insight and recognizes that all these pleasant sensations that come from the five senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching, and even the mental sense, you know, the ordinary mental sense, seeing that these, so all of our daydreams and our fantasies, seeing that all these things are, are impermanent, that the pleasant feeling from them is, is impermanent, it's in the nature of dukkha because it is only a stopgap thing and if, if we keep doing this particular thing it eventually actually becomes painful and seeing that this thing is not self yeah. and when that painful feeling has arisen in him it does not invade his mind and remain because mind is developed okay so when he, a noble disciple has pain you know he just switches his mind goes into smarty okay Anyone in whom, in this double manner, a risen pleasant feeling does not invade his mind and remain because body is developed, and a risen painful feeling does not invade his mind and remain because mind is developed, is thus developed in body and developed in mind. So that's the meaning of development in body, development in mind. And that's the ultimate way to handle pleasant feeling and, un- and painful feeling so that we don't get whacked about about them, so that we don't have yo-yo mind all the time. Okay? Now, some people, when they hear this, they think, oh, you know, kind of, oh, I can't have pleasure. Pleasure's bad. And we already know pain we don't want. Well, that's not what this passage is saying, isn't it? There's nothing wrong with pleasure. Don't feel guilty when you have pleasure or anything like that. Okay? But you have the pleasure, but you don't go from pleasant pleasure into attachment. Why? Because you see that that pleasure is just pleasure. That's all it is. There's nothing there to hang on to. It's impermanent. It's arising, abiding, and ceasing in each moment. Yeah. Samsaric pleasant feeling is in the nature of being unsatisfactory. And it is not self so there's nothing to hang on to there to make a big deal about you don't reject the pleasure but you don't latch on to it either okay and similar with painful feeling painful feeling is just painful feeling that's all yeah it's not permanent it's not self yeah we don't need to make a bunch of stories about it yeah so you can actually deal with the painful feeling with, with uh, you know, with samadhi, the, the samatha part of the path, or 
with uh, insight also seen. You know, it's impermanent, it's not self. So, in the twelve links, you know, when we study the twelve links, there's certain points in the twelve links where the links are very fragile and where you, you can break them. And one of those places is between feeling and the next link, craving. Because we go from feeling directly into craving. Either craving to have it more, craving to not experience it, craving for the neutral feeling not to go away, something like that. But if we have wisdom, we don't have to go from feeling into craving like we do when we're an ordinary being. Okay? So that's one of the things to be very attentive to in our life, to be mindful when we have feeling, and just to know it as this is simply feeling. That's all. Yeah. Nothing there to cling on to. It's impermanent. It rises. It abides. It ceases. It's not self. No need to cling on to it. Same thing with painful feeling. Okay? So that's that's a a way to practice so that we don't... We aren't like yo-yos all the time. Going up and down, up and down, up and down. Yeah. Now remember, sometimes people say to His Holiness, "You know, but having so much pleasure is really—it's so wonderful." And you know, being steady and not having these extreme of pleasure—it really sounds rather boring. And if you don't know intense suffering, then you also don't know real pleasure. So, isn't suffering also necessary? Okay, you hear people say this lots of times. Of course, people only say that thing about isn't suffering necessary because you don't know you don't know happiness until you understand suffering. They only say that when they're not in intense suffering. Yeah, I've never heard a person extol the virtue of suffering when they're experiencing intense suffering. Say, oh, through this racking pain, then I'm going to know real pleasure. I've never heard somebody say that when they're in racking pain. Yeah. It's just some intellectual blah, blah, people say. Okay? But then they say, but you know, I need this extreme of pleasure, you know. This makes me feel so alive. And if, if I don't have attachment to the pleasure, then life is so boring. And His Holiness always responds, responds, well, you know, maybe it's boring, but actually I prefer that, not to have so many up and down extremes and to have some kind of stability in my my life. Actually, I find that a lot more peaceful. (laughs) Yeah? But some of us, we really like these extreme emotions You know, and you find some people, it's very interesting, sometimes some people, especially in romantic relationships, they love drama. Yeah, it's like they're addicted to drama. And if the relationship is kind of going along okay, and you know, you're happy, you know, things are going along okay, but you know, you're not in the throes of experiencing incredible... Ah, bliss from this relationship. Then, you know, they want some drama. And it's, you know, 
you don't care about me. You're looking at somebody else. You're ignoring me. You don't really love me. You've never really cared about me. You've always been using me. You know, I don't feel love. This relationship isn't meeting my expectations and my needs. And, and you know, going into all this kind of drama with their partner and having huge fights, you know, and sometimes even, you know, hitting and beating each other and yelling and screaming and throwing things at each other. And then, you know, so, so much drama. And they really get off on the drama, you know. And then, hopefully you make up at the end of it, yeah. And then, oh, isn't that so wonderful to make up and be back in love again. Have you ever been in relationships like that? Yeah, or seen people in relationships like that? Yeah, and some people, they don't know how to have just a normal, uh, not, not, not a normal, an unnormal relationship of being, of getting along with each other. You know, because they love the throes of ecstasy and they love the drama of discord. Because it makes them feel so alive. Why do they feel alive? Because the I is very big in both those circumstances. Yeah? The object to be negated in the emptiness meditation is prominent. I exist because I feel these this incredible bliss and this incredible torment. And self-centered mind is right there lapping it up. And we think this is having a relationship or the meaning of life or something. And we've been spending time from time without beginning doing this. Are we happy? Have we been happy? Has it gotten us anywhere? If we have some wisdom, it's gotten us here. <laughs> and it's gotten us to the Dharma. But you see, some people, the, the, the wisdom, you know, hasn't come yet. One thing after another. Okay. Then, so talking about that way of dealing with pleasure and pain by really using the Dharma practice. Then we're going to come back to the Buddha's life and how the Buddha actually practiced after he got over all that all that stuff okay so here I'm, I'm, like I said I'm just skipping around so now we're in uh, Majjhima Nikaya Sutra number 4 called Fear and Dread okay so um, the Buddha I'm starting in the middle of the sutra because he says tireless energy was aroused in me and unremitting mindfulness was established my body was tranquil and untroubled my mind concentrated and unified okay and here from now the, the verses he's going to go is he's going to talk about how he practiced and went and attained the four jhanas yeah and because although we have this warning about not being carried away, carried away by the bliss of the jhanas you know on one hand 
the ascetic practices don't pay off and the Buddha was seeing that he wasn't getting anywhere and so he came back here to do the jhana practices and rest and heal his body and mind and use the jhanas as then uh, a, a level of mind to develop insight by which he was able to liberate himself. Okay. So quite secluded from sensual pleasures. Okay. So here, you know, he's going to talk about what you need to get into the first jhana. Secluded from sensual pleasures means we've seen the disadvantages of the desire realm and attachment to sensual pleasures. Secluded from unwholesome states. So in the desire realm, there's a lot of unwholesome mental states, you know, because we have have so much attachment and craving and hostility and so on. So secluded from the sensual pleasures and from the, the unwholesome states. I entered upon and abided in the first jhana which is accompanied by coarse um, engagement and uh, subtle engagement with rapture and bliss born from seclusion. So it's being secluded from the desire realm state of mind. Then you have, you know, these mental factors. And what has been suppressed at this time, at the time of going into the the first jhana are called the five hindrances so sensual desire then ill will sloth and torpor restlessness and regret and then doubt so those are five hindrances to developing uh, shamatha so those have, have been in the, to the time of the first uh, jhana they've been suppressed not eradicated because the seeds are still there but they don't arise in a manifest form when you're in that meditative state okay. with the stilling of coarse and subtle engagement okay. so now he's going to talk about how he goes into the second jhana so coarse and subtle engagement are, are a little bit rough mental factors so through stilling them I entered upon and abided in the second jhana which has self-confidence and singleness of mind without coarse and subtle engagement with rapture and bliss born of concentration so the rapture and bliss born of concentration is very different than the pleasant pleasant feeling and happiness in the desire realm they're very very different I cannot speak from experience in this life although they say we've all had this in previous lives but um, you know it's it's said to be a very very different kind of happiness and bliss than what we ordinarily know okay then talking about going into the third jhana with the fading away um, as well of rapture okay because rapture can be a kind of it's so rapturous that you're a little bit excited you know so the mind isn't completely still so you also let that go I abided in equanimity and and mindful and fully aware here fully aware is samprajana or introspective alertness still feeling bliss with the body I entered upon and abided in the third jhana 
on account of which the noble ones announce, he has a pleasant abiding who has equanimity and is mindful. Okay, so yeah, equanimity is more prominent here, but still there's the bliss. Okay, in the third jhana. Then going on into the fourth jhana, with the abandoning of pleasure and pain, and with the previous disappearance of joy and grief, I entered upon and abided in the fourth jhana, which has neither pain nor pleasure. That means it has a more neutral feeling, uh, more equanimous feeling. And so it has that and the purity of mindfulness due to equanimity. Okay. So in each one of these four jhanic states, you start out with all five of these mental factors, course, engagement, applied engagement, rapture, bliss, and single-pointedness. And then to go into the second one, you abandon the, the first two. To go into the third, the third jhana, you abandon rapture. To go into the fourth jhana, you abandon um, bliss. Okay. So he says, when my concentrated mind was thus purified, bright, unblemished, rid of perfection, malleable, wieldly, steady, and attained in imperturbability, I directed it to the knowledge of the recollection of past lives. Okay? So here in the first part, you know, saying this mind is uh, purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability. With that kind of concentration, you have full control over your mind and you can guide your mind to any kind of virtuous mental object you want to. So it's at that point that you really want to, you know, arise insight and use that insight to penetrate the nature of reality. Okay? So in the Pali scriptures, that would mean understanding impermanent suffering and non-self. In the Mahayana path, you would use that to realize emptiness. And you would also realize it to meditate on bodhicitta, to really stabilize your bodhicitta motivation. But here, now we're going to go through the different realizations according to the Pali canon that the Buddha got on the night of his enlightenment. Okay, so the first one was the recollection of past lives. So the recollection of past lives is actually one of the um, the supernormal powers that somebody can get when you know when they're in the fourth jhana, and so many meditators can get them, Buddhist or non-Buddhist, just by uh, attaining the fourth jhana, because the jhanic practice is not particularly Buddhist. Okay, so you can get this you know, power of recollecting past lives. But if you've trained in the Dharma, you know, beforehand, then you'll know how to use that realization of a recollection of past lives. Okay. Now, just imagine for a moment that you were able to recollect your past lives, all of your past lives when you've been born in the bliss of the God realms and the pain of the hell realms when you've, you know, had everybody as your lover, your mother, your enemy, you've been able to recollect all your past lives. What kind of dharma understanding do you think that that seeing would bring to you? Renunciation. Renunciation. Yeah. 
whole lot. Because we're thinking about our own. Yeah. So it brings renunciation. Definitely compassion for ourselves. But you know what compassion for ourselves is? Because here we're recollecting our own past lives. Renunciation is compassion for ourselves. Because renunciation is wanting ourselves to be free of samsara. And that's the most compassionate thing we can want for ourselves. Because here we're talking, you know, the Buddha's talking about seeing all of his own past lives. And if you saw everything you had been born in, in samsara, wouldn't you have this feeling of total, utter disgust with the whole thing and how totally useless all of that was, how much pain you experienced, how much pain you caused others. Imagine remembering all your past lives and remembering all the horrible things you did to others. You know, it's like, I don't want to stay like this. I'm finished with it. I can't go on this way. Tremendous renunciation. Okay? Okay, so here's how he's saying I directed it to knowledge of the recollection of past lives. I recollected my manifold past lives. That is, one birth, two births, three births, four births, five births, ten births, twenty births, thirty births, forty births, fifty births, a hundred births, a thousand births, a hundred thousand births, many eons of world contraction, many eons of world expansion, many eons of world contraction and expansion. And in all those lives, he remembered, there I was so named of such a clan, with such an appearance, such was my nutriment, such was my experience of pleasure and pain, such my, my lifespan, and passing away from there, I reappeared elsewhere. So he saw all the times he was born, lived, whatever he was lived as, how he died in each rebirth and how after dying from each rebirth he was born again in another rebirth and there too I was so named of such a clan with such an appearance such was my nutriment such was my experience of pleasure and pain such my life term and passing away from them there I reappeared here and so he saw himself dying from that rebirth and reappearing in another one, all the time being pushed by afflictions and karma. You generate pretty strong renunciation seeing that. Just total like blah, you know. Thus, with, all, with their aspects and particulars, I recollected my manifold past lives. This was the first true knowledge attained by me in the first watch of the night. That's after he had sat down under the Bodhi tree, the first part of the night. Ignorance was banished and true knowledge arose. Darkness was banished and light arose, as happens in one who abides diligent, ardent, and resolute. So you have to have a lot of energy, diligence, being ardent, being resolute. So it's not for somebody who likes to lie back and drink tea and, you know, get waited on. Okay. When my concentrated mind was thus purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldly, steady, and attained to imper- imperturbability, I directed it to knowledge of the passing away and reappearance of beings. So here he's directing that same level of concentration to seeing 
other sentient beings pass away and reappear in samsara. Okay? With the divine eye, so this is another one of the supernormal powers you can attain at, at the, with the fourth jhana. But again, if you have a dharma understanding beforehand, having studied and practiced, then you know how to use this divine eye. If you don't have that dharma understanding, you can actually develop a lot of arrogance about this. But clearly the Buddha had dharma understanding. Okay, so he developed the divine eye, which is purified and surpasses the human. I saw beings passing away and reappearing. Inferior and superior, fair and ugly, fortunate and unfortunate. I understood how beings pass on according to their actions thus. These worthy beings who were, who were ill-conducted in body, speech, and mind, revilers of noble ones, wrong in their views, giving effect to wrong view in their actions, on the dissolution of the body after death, have reappeared in a state of deprivation, in a bad destiny, in perdition, even in hell. This is what he saw. But these worthy beings who were well conducted in body, speech, and mind, not revilers of noble ones, right in their views, giving effect to right view in their actions, on the dissolution of the body after death, have reappeared in a good destiny, even in the heavenly world. Thus, with the divine eye, which is purified and surpasses the human, I saw beings passing away and reappearing, inferior and superior, fair and ugly, fortunate and unfortunate, and I stood, understood how beings pass on according to their actions. Now suppose for a moment that you had the ability to see how beings died and then reappeared in another rebirth according to their karma and died from that rebirth and reappeared in another rebirth according to their karma and you saw all the actions that they did, the horrible karmas they created that, create, that bring on the horrible rebirths, the virtuous karmas they created that bring on the happy rebirths and you saw all of that very nakedly like but you're looking at your hand right now. How do you think you'd feel? What would arise in your mind if you had dharma understanding? Compassion. Yeah. And not just compassion, the bodhicitta. Because, you know, compassion is wanting them to be free of that suffering. But wouldn't you also have bodhicitta wanting to do something about it? That's actually the great resolve. And then what are you going to do about it? Attain enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. That's bodhicitta. Okay. So that's the second realization Buddha gained. Yeah? What's interesting in hearing you describe both of those and you asked what came up, the thing that came to me in both of those is the understanding of karma and how it's happening in either situation, whether it was him seeing his own lives or the lives of the others and what arose, but just that understanding of cause and effect. Yeah. And how we're controlled by our afflictions. Aren't we? Cause and effect. How the afflictions create the karma which brings the effect. 
This was the second true knowledge attained by me in the second watch of the night. Ignorance was banished and true knowledge arose. Darkness was banished and light arose, as happens in one who abides diligent, ardent, and resolute. When my concentrated mind was thus purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldly, steady, and attained to imperturbability. Okay, now he's going on to the third watch of the night when he realized. I directed it to the knowledge of the destruction of the taints. Okay, so the major taints in the the Pali system are uh, sensual attachment, sensual attachment, attachment to um, existence in samsara, ignorance, and sometimes they add a fourth one, wrong views. Okay. So I directed it to the knowledge of the destruction of the taints, so knowing that he had destroyed the taints. I directly knew as it actually is. This is suffering. I directly knew as it actually is. This is the origin of suffering. I directly knew as it actually is. This is the cessation of suffering. I directly knew as it actually is. This is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. So he directly knew the Four Noble Truths. I directly knew as it actually is. These are the taints. So what is standing in the way of liberation? These are the taints. I directly knew, as it actually is, this is the origin of the taints. So how do these arise? I directly knew, as it actually is, this is the cessation of the taints. Okay. I directly knew, as it actually is, this is the way leading to the cessation of the taints. So the taint, the, the first four, that was suffering. He was understanding the Four Noble Truths. Here he's understanding the taints, the origin, the, what they are, their origin, the cessation, and the path. But the taints are also part of the second noble truth, the origin of dukkha. Okay. And he was able to cease the taints. Okay. If we put this in, in the terms, the language we're used to, ceasing all the afflictions and all the cognitive obscurations. Okay, because he's attaining Buddhahood here. So, when I knew and saw thus, my mind was liberated from the taint of sensual desire. Okay, it's the first state. From the taint of being, which means craving for existence within uh, samsara. And from the taint of ignorance. When it was thus liberated, there came the knowledge, it is liberated. I directly knew birth is destroyed, the holy life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. There is no more coming to any state of being. Okay, so birth has been destroyed because ignorance, its source has been destroyed. The holy life has been lived. So why, the reason why he became a monastic has been fulfilled. What had to be done has been done. So the cessation, ceasing the afflictions and karma that caused rebirth 
and if we speak of it in a Mahayana way, ceasing also the, the cognitive obscurations that has been done, there is no more coming to any state of being, meaning there is no more rebirth in samsara. Okay. This was the third true knowledge attained by me in the third watch of the night. Ignorance was banished and true knowledge arose. Darkness was banished and light arose, as happens in one who bides diligent, ardent, and resolute. Now, in order to know the Four Noble Truths directly, in order to know the origin, the uh, what the taints are, their origin, cessation, and path, what do you need? Wisdom. Okay. So that's what he gained in the third. I mean, he had it before, but that's what was perfected at the third watch of the night. What did he gain the first watch? The second watch? The third? Where else have you seen those three? Huh? The three principal aspects of the path. Okay. Okay, so we're at the Buddha becoming enlightened. Tomorrow we're going to talk about what happens after that in his life. Okay? So, any questions? and wisdom that knows the, the true nature. plant a lot of good seeds in previous lives then things can go very quickly in the last life okay and so I think this is is part of an attitude to hold in our mind you know that even if we don't attain enlightenment in this life we are planting good seeds and the more good seeds you plant of ignorance and bodhicitta in your mind stream in each successive life you know, then the easier it's going to become each life because you're building up your realization. Okay, you're building up your understanding. Okay, so they say Milarepa attain enlightenment in that very life. Yeah, but I've also heard that that's because he was a great practitioner for 500 lifetimes previously, you know, doing kind of very great practice and so on and so forth. And probably before those 500 lives, he was also doing a lot of quite magnificent practice and virtuous activities. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, earlier when you were talking about Kaka? Uh, yes. Sakaka. Sakaka. And uh, the not grasping and pushing away and how when we, things arise kind of the way we're supposed to think in mm-hmm. order to really do that that's, that's kind of like a really conceptual thing mm-hmm. I guess I would say so in, in your experience what's like the, the texture tone of mind because when I'm thinking of oh you know these things are impermanent these things that's not a texture of mind mm-hmm. it's just it's just I mean hopefully that will bring a certain yeah. way, way of feeling mm-hmm. but at that point it's very much just conceptual okay so when we're talking about dealing with let's say uh, when unpleasant feelings arise to not let them go into attachment and craving to think about impermanence okay and that sounds very conceptual because you're saying yeah they're impermanent they're impermanent well so what I want them Um, okay Uh, the, the thing is that as you develop your concentration then you become able to see a change as it's happening in each split moment so you're actually able to have a direct yogic perception of, of impermanence but even before that if we really think deep, more deeply even if our concentration in meditation isn't deep enough to see the impermanence even if we think more deeply you know, even if we think grossly this happy feeling isn't going to last just already remembering that helps, doesn't it? It's going gonna, it's gonna to help more than not remembering it, isn't it? And if we reflect a lot on impermanence, and even in a very gross way, think of all the happiness we've had before and how each, each happiness we've had before has ceased. None of it's lasted. Hasn't you know, every single one of our happinesses has ceased. It's not happening now. The happiness we had yesterday is not happening now. The happiness we had a year ago isn't happening now. The happiness that we've experienced previous lifetimes is not happening now. So even if you think, you know, all the happiness that I've experienced, that I've struggled so hard to get in my life, it's all disintegrated so why don't I stop struggling so hard to get happiness you know why don't I just relax a little bit I might actually feel better yeah what's the so, but, that feel I guess uh, is the question because I, I do just, a lot of that concept I don't get anywhere okay well that's because you've, you've got to really look look in your past and think about all the happy times you had and where are they now? Yeah? Look about every single one from when you were a little kid, you know? Every single happy time. Every single you think. And watch how there's this feeling of being let down on every single happy time, you know, vanished. And especially, you know, our parents did so much for us to give us things and, and have us be happy they went really so much out of their way but everything they did for us they couldn't bring us lasting happiness every single happiness they gave us ended 
you know? And you just sit and think about that for a while. Hmm? And you, you begin to see, you know, there is nothing in samsara to get attached to. Hmm? Huh? It's a sober state of mind. It's sad, but it's not an ordinary sad. It's a sad that comes with wisdom. That it's the sadness of I've been cheated. You know? So on one hand you're sad because you've been cheated. On the other hand you're so relieved to know that you've been cheated because now you can get out of it. It's like, my mind has been cheating me this whole time. It's not apathy. Huh? Not a flavor of apathy. Oh, it's definitely not apathy. It's like, my, my mind has cheated me. In its ignorance, it's cheated me this whole time. And I've been going up and down and up and down and struggling so hard to get pleasure. You know, you have to go to school, you have to go out and get a job, and then you have to work all this, and you have to get criticized, and you have to get evaluated, and you get laid off from your job, and on and on and on, everything to try and be happy again and again in samsara. And it's come to nothing, because all that happiness is impermanent. Okay? So then your mind gets really kind of sober, and like, you know... Not, 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 and just a feeling like, what have I been doing, you know? I'm not going to do that anymore, you know? The next time this pleasure comes and dangles in front of me, I'm not going to run after it anymore because I know where it's leading me. Now, of course, we're so habituated in pleasure that the next time the pleasure comes, we chase after it, Okay? But the thing is, with Dharma practice, is after you've chased after the pleasure, again, then you sit and you say, I did it again, but you know what? It's impermanent. It's not here now. I chased after it. I may have even gotten it. And it's not here now. Okay. So then you fortify your determination not to chase after after it next time. And the next time, too, maybe you fall on your face. But then you go back and you keep learning and reflecting on your own experience in this way. And it's only by doing this repeatedly that our wisdom becomes really strong and we get a really gut understanding of wanting to change the pattern. So You know, it really requires repetition. Yeah? Not it's not you know. Boing. Also, it seems like we can do those meditations and come out wrong. But doing them repeatedly, we uh-huh. can repeatedly go the wrong direction. Like what? Well, like becoming angry at the fact that none of our efforts have come through. Yeah, like I worked so hard and it's not come through, so I get angry. If you if you come to that conclusion, then you haven't done the meditation properly. So that's why it's important to know when you're meditating what is the correct conclusion you're going to try and come to. And if you don't come to that conclusion, then know that, you know. If, you're, if at the end of a meditation you're angry, 
then you know that you haven't done the meditation right, okay? You know? That doesn't mean you're bad. It just means you went astray somewhere. <laughs> okay? Yeah? For me, I'm not doing meditation right, but I just kind of ground this feeling of like, you know, having something that goes all of a sudden, seeing it all like. Crumble. Yeah. How do you have the the joy to stay in the room? Okay. So when you feel this kind of groundless feeling, because you've been holding on to this and it's all crumbled, and you feel kind of groundless, I actually. You know, that groundless feeling, there's something about it that's very relaxing. (laughs) Because you don't need to struggle anymore. Yeah? When you feel like there's real happiness out there, then you have to struggle to get it. But when you see that it's not real happiness, then you just stop struggling. You just relax. You know, and there's really this sensation of relaxation. Like, I don't need to struggle to be happy anymore. Yeah? If happiness comes, that's great. If happiness doesn't come, it's okay. But I don't have to struggle anymore. Running around like one of these rats, beating on the pecking thing, hoping, hoping to get another grain of rice that never comes. I don't need to do that anymore. What a relief. You know? I don't need to build people up and then be disappointed because they aren't what I wanted them to be. I don't need to think that this, you know, experience is so wonderful and then find out, (laughs) you know, that there's something beyond it or, you know, it doesn't... you know, I don't need to go through that anymore. And it's it just, you know, kind of the few times you get to that in your meditation, it's just, oh. I mean, you do feel groundless and you do feel kind of sad, you know, in, in that sober state. But it's like, it's just such a relief. Oh. And then, also, you feel, oh, now I'm getting somewhere in my practice. Yeah. I've, I've seen my attachment, you know, I've gotten some feeling of why attachment doesn't work. Ah, this is a little bit closer to what the Buddha must feel. Okay? Now maybe you're not, you're getting to that groundless feeling and then getting angry or getting disturbed. And and it it could happen, you know, you get to that groundless feeling, and because you haven't, you don't have the thought that now I'm getting closer to what the Buddha's trying to get me to, you feel, but that was the only happiness I knew, and now I find out it's not real happiness, and what am I going to do? This is miserable. This really sucks. Okay, so when when you only when your mind is only thinking about worldly happiness, when you have that feeling of disillusionment, you get very miserable and unhappy. But when but when you you have some feeling of you know I don't want to even it's an intellectual feeling of like you know samsara just doesn't cut it. 
is so full of disadvantages, then at that time when you feel a little groundless and disappointed in samsara, you know, oh, this is good, I'm getting somewhere. You know, I'm getting a little less interested in samsara pleasure now, this is good. Okay? Because you already know, you know, and you have some conviction that, that, you know, nirvana and enlightenment are there, there's that carrot, and you have some conviction about it, and you want to go there. But if you don't know about nirvana and enlightenment, or you don't have any faith in them, and then you say, but I always used to get happiness by, you know, by having sex and eating chocolate cake and being praised and getting money, and now I see it's not real happiness. Ah, my life is worth nothing. You know, I'm going to go kill myself. That's the conclusion you come to if you don't really know anything about the Dharma or have faith that, that there's nirvana and enlightenment. But just try kind of enjoying the groundlessness instead of, you know, going, you know. (laughs) I mean, it's it's so interesting. The first time we experience something unusual, our instant thing is, you know, and we tighten instead of just, well, let's relax. And what, what really made me aware of this is on one of my transoceanic flights, you know, where they show these horrible movies, I never but don't usually don't put the headsets on. Um, there was one scene from some old movie, you know, like one movie that my parents watched or something, a forties movie, of you know, there's this beautiful woman and she's in the dark house and there's a skeleton coming up, walking behind her. And she turns around and sees the skeleton and screams in horror and faints or whatever. And I remember watching this on my flight and thinking, what about if she just turned around and talked to the skeleton? (laughs) You know? And then I really thought, you know, the moment we see something unusual, we just react in this knee-jerk way without any examination of other alternatives. Yeah. And I thought, what would happen if when you saw a skeleton, you just trained your mind to say, well, hello, how are you doing? Yeah. That would totally change the whole situation, wouldn't it? Yeah. So in all these situations where we, you know, whether... It's with family or friends or feeling groundless or whatever. What about if we just, you know, even after you scream in horror, what about if you then turn around and talk to the skeleton? You know? Just try acting in a different, reacting in a different way. Give yourself some space. Smile! <laughs> Come on, it's you can like do it! Dying, like some sense of way of thinking and going away. Yeah, it's dying. Your, your painful way of thinking is dying. At least I existed in. <laughs> yeah, that's like somebody who said to me there's one security in being depressed because you know what tomorrow's going to be like. But isn't that sad? 
Isn't that sad? Sometimes it just takes kind of jumping when we don't know what it's going to be. Yeah. Things that are new. Just because I don't think anybody's initial reaction is seeing a skeleton. How are you doing? Yeah, right. So sometimes it just takes just doing it. Yeah. And training the mind. Training your mind and sometimes just, like you said, doing it. You know? Playing. That's what I call playing. Let's play with the situation instead of take it so, make it such a heavy big deal. Let's play with it. It seems like if you develop your concentration really well, that when these things come at you that aren't familiar, you're more able to play with it or work with yeah. it without just the knee jerk. Yeah. So that's why that's so important to develop concentration. Yeah. Concentration. And I think when, as your compassion develops too, mm-hmm. you're seeing an alternative to, with which to respond to other things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it reminds me of this, um, this movie where um, this guy hired someone to jump out at him at his house in various times so he could practice this. Like he hires this guy <laughs> so he could sharpen this exact thing like responding uh-huh. without startle uh-huh. and just responding to the moment. So he had the guy jump out of the closet one morning here, jump out of the bathroom and go like, I thought it was perfect and I thought that's such a good idea. Yeah. I think we should do that with each other in the time. <laughs> Well, we don't have to try. How many times do we almost collide with each other? What do you think? Barbara Costin. I don't know. <laughs> is, there, is, there, is the response a, a jumping towards doing it or a letting go or surrendering? I think it's both. It's just like, ah, you know? It's, it's like giving up samsara going towards nirvana. They come, they're different, but they're the same. Okay. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Play. One of the things when I have that glimpse of that groundlessness is not part of the, my reaction we would want to find the place of grounded again. And when I don't hold on to wanting to find the grounded place, then I can just be with it and enjoy it. But when I want it to kind of flip back to something that's more familiar, that's, you know, it's, it's the struggle or it just kind of flips back into it's gone. Yeah. Know, and, and right. Right. Exactly. Enjoy it. It's not quite the right yeah. thing. Be with it. Allowing it to yeah. be rather than wanting it to the change. Yeah. I wanted to ask you if you have kind of things because I was thinking about what you're saying. Do you have experiences that come up that are just spontaneous where things happen where you're just kind of Okay. Okay. Yeah, just like just completely accepting of what's happening in the moment. 
I think they'll look cool and have access to shock. I can't believe how big this is. This is everything, my whole sense of believing it completely false. And then <laughs> No, from that, you know, that pleasure attachment and permanence, and emptiness, all that. Very grounds. But think, this is taking me away from suffering. Right. Into the unknown, that's the piece of liberation. Into both. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you believe in suffering, and suffering is impermanent, you should believe in liberation, too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. to cultivate that think about it okay let's quietly Due to this magnificent, attaining heart and state of Guru Buddha, that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering, may the precious body mind not yet born arise and grow, may the born have no decline but increase forever. 